be turning to Mark 12 if you're not there. Um, the direction of the music was intentional today because of the content of the passage before us. Of course, we're in our study of the Gospel of Mark. And today's title, the message is, is simply this, Heaven is Real. I thought I'd get an amen there. Looks like I got some work to do today to prove it to you. Heaven is real. It's real. You know, there's a lot of speculation revolving around the topic of life after death, isn't there? There are a ton of questions in churches, ton of questions in non-believers' minds when it comes to what we think and how we think about eternity, how we think about heaven. And I got to be honest, there are a lot of weird answers to some of our questions. For instance, and I'm going to disappoint some of y'all today. One of the most unreliable sources you can go to for your answers about heaven is country music. <coughs> Comedian Bob Newhart put it best. I don't like country music. And I don't mean to denigrate those who do. But for those who do like country music, denigrate means to put down. Those that like country music still don't get the joke. I apologize if you like country music, I will pray for you. But even if you like it, you've got to admit it's a horrible place to get your theology. It's a bad place to get your theology on heaven. How do you know? Well, because of how they write their songs. There's a song entitled, When I Get to Where I'm Going. It says, prepare to be overwhelmed by the depth of the lyric. When I get to where I'm going on the far side of the sky, the first thing I'm going to do is spread my wings and fly. Can we pause for a minute just to appreciate the complex rhyme scheme that went into that lyric? Thank you. I'm going to land beside a lion and run my fingers through his mane. Or I might find out what it's like to ride on a drop of rain. You're left about as impressed as I was. There's another song entitled Holes in Heaven. <laughs> I'm about to burst your bubble right here. Holes in Heaven teaches that, that your loved ones are watching you from heaven through holes. And when the rain falls, it's actually their tears falling because they miss you so bad. <laughs> Told one of our deacons that about this song this last week. He said, well, there's been a drought in Southwest Kansas for a long time. <laughs> what does that say about how much our loved ones miss us? <laughs> country singer, country writer didn't think about that one, did he? I don't know how many times I've sat through a funeral. I wanted to stand up and say, that's not true. They're playing a country song and it's sentimental. It's cute and everybody's crying and. And grandma loves it, but it's just not true. Frankly, between the lyrics of modern day music, the testimonies on books from books written by people who supposedly went to heaven and back, straight up false teaching really about life after death that exists in so many religions. Between all that information, let's be honest, people are very confused about heaven. It's almost like they believe what makes them feel best. In fact, there are so many unanswered questions about heaven that even good Christians begin to doubt whether or not it's real. And that's what our text will address for us today. It'll answer two questions about heaven. First, 
It'll answer the question, what is heaven like? And most importantly, is it true? Is it real? Jesus will give us a brief description of what we can expect in heaven. And then he's going to tell us that we can count on it. We can be sure of it. We can have that hope within us. The way this subject comes up in our text is through a group of men that didn't believe in what they called the resurrection. Which means the raising up of the dead after they die. They, they don't believe people go to a real heaven. They don't believe that, that people experience what we call eternal life after death. They don't believe that. This group of men is going to come to Jesus and they're going to ask him a question about what heaven's like. It's going to be a hard question. It's going to be a question they're certain he won't be able to answer. And as Jesus gets tongue-tied and as he gets embarrassed because he can't answer them, it's going to prove that they're right. Heaven's not for real. And, and when people see that what Jesus has been teaching them about the resurrection is false, they'll stop following him. Mission accomplished. These men are called the Sadducees. They're the influential families of wealth and prestige and politics. The reason they don't believe in the resurrection or in heaven is because they can't find any mention of it in the first five books of the Bible. And those are the only books of the Bible that they see as authoritative. They only treat the Pentateuch, the book of Moses, the, the Torah, whatever you want to call the first five books of the Bible, they only treat those as the legitimate word of God. When they know about other places in the Old Testament by now that speak of the resurrection, such as Daniel 12, verse 2. They're familiar with it. Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting content. They're familiar with Isaiah's prophecy that says, Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust. The Sadducees are, are well aware of these Old Testament scriptures that speak so clearly to the resurrection. But these scriptures don't count because they're not part of the first five books of the Bible. And so they're going to ask Jesus a question from the books of Moses, the only five books they believe are real. And they're, they're, they're convinced that he won't be able to answer this question. Yet once again, once again, as we've seen in the last several weeks, Jesus is going to answer it just fine. And in that answer, he's going to describe what will heaven be like. And most importantly, he's going to teach them and us that it's absolutely True. Verse 18. Then came unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, if a man's brother die and leave his wife behind him and leave no children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. So he brings up this Old Testament custom. Then they come up with a hypothetical situation based on this custom. Verse 20. Now there were seven brethren and the first took a wife. And dying left no seed. The second brother took her and died. Neither left he any seed. They're talking about a son. And the third likewise. And the seven had her and left no seed. Last of all, the woman died also. Here's the question. In the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. So their question about the woman with seven husbands is hypothetical. I think it's actually a, a bit far-fetched, but it's not completely unreasonable. The woman had seven husbands on earth. In heaven, which one will be her husband? 
Even if we drop the number down from seven to two, it still presents an interesting situation in heaven. If on earth you married and that spouse dies, then you get married again. When you die and go to heaven, which one will you be married to? The example that they're bringing up comes from something that Moses had written to their people back in the book of Deuteronomy. Well, let me read it to you. It's on the screen. If brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother, in other words, her brother-in-law, shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of an husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. So, so the idea behind this cultural custom was that every man ought to have someone to carry on his name. And inherit his property. So the, the custom was that if a man died before having a son to carry on his name, one of his brothers would then marry his widow, hopefully have a son. And now there would be an heir to the inheritance and a, a true descendant of the family. And so the Sadducees come to Jesus with an exaggerated example of this Old Testament custom. A woman is married to her husband, but her husband dies without giving her a son. So she married one of her brother-in-laws, but the same thing happens to him. And the same thing happens again the third time. And this happened seven times in a row. The woman was literally legally married to seven brothers. But all of them died before giving her a son. And all of this happened before Arkansas was considered a state. It's wild. Combined number of teeth in the husbands was three. Now, if I was brother four or five, I'd be getting kind of nervous. Like, what's this lady putting in the soup? You know what I mean? Kind of reminds me of the elderly man. He was on his deathbed and he had his wife beside him. He said, Gladys, every old lady's named Gladys. You've always been here. When I fell off the roof and we had to call the ambulance, you were there. When I got sick, you were there. When we lost everything and had to declare bankruptcy, you were there. And now I'm right here at death's door and here you are again. Gladys, I figured it out. You're bad luck. <laughs> here was a woman in the text. Bad luck to seven dudes. And the Sadducees are asking Jesus, in heaven, which one will be a real husband? It can't be all seven. That'll be confusing. No lady could handle that anyway. That'll be awkward. That'll be immoral. Yet at the same time, it's unfair to just pick one out of the six. She loved all of them. Now, the question isn't reasonable. There are people in our own congregation that have married, been married for 15 or 20 years. That spouse dies. God sent them another spouse. They married again. They'll enjoy marriage for another three or four decades. They love both. Is it going to get weird in heaven? See, this creates a situation that is potentially, well, weird, absurd. That's why the Sadducees asked this question. They were convinced that there was no good answer. And it made heaven look unrealistic. And if heaven looked unrealistic, these people would doubt the validity of Jesus Christ's message. And they certainly wouldn't submit to his authority. But Jesus doesn't dodge their question. He's going to answer their question. It's going to speak directly to their question. 
And he's going to tell them this. Your question itself reveals two things about your ignorance. You're ignorant about, number one, the power of God. And you are ignorant about the word of God. He's going to teach them. He's going to talk about the power of God first. He's going to teach them what the power of God is able to do when we get to heaven. He's going to talk about what heaven is like because the power of God is going to make it that way. He's going, to, he's going to talk about how the power of God will make all our relationships in heaven joyful and full and complete and intimate. In fact, I think he's going to teach them that, that through the power of God, all our relationships in heaven will be raised to the level of our closest relationship on earth. Look at verse 24 and 25. And Jesus answering said unto them, Do you not therefore err because ye know not the scriptures? neither the power of God. For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. What is Jesus saying? He's saying we will not resume our marriages in heaven. Jenny asked me on Tuesday, what are you preaching on Sunday? And I said, I'm preaching on Mark chapter 12. She said, what's Mark chapter 12 about? I said, it's that passage of scripture that says there will be no marriages in heaven. And she broke down. And I have been trying to lift her spirits all week long. Saying, babe, it's going to be okay. You can live without me. You'll be fine. Now we will recognize each other. We'll be thrilled to see each other. We'll embrace each other. I don't know if I'll give her a kiss like I just died. I, I don't know what's going to be okay in heaven. Well, the holy kiss, remember? Greet one another with a holy kiss, whatever a holy kiss is. I, I'm going to YouTube that and see what, what that's all about. I think we'll talk back over a lot of the good memories that we shared. It'll be the greatest family reunion ever. And some of you have lost a spouse. And when you get there, you'll recognize them. And you'll embrace them. And it'll be thrilling but here's what you'll find out. You'll turn from your conversation with that person who is your spouse and you'll talk with other friends. And you're going to discover that you are equally as close in heaven to them as you were to your spouse on earth. You're going to discover that God has raised up all our relationships to the same level. See, our marriages, follow me, on earth have a sexual dimension to them, which is wonderful for intimacy and emotional connection. But one of the main reasons God gave this gift to us was for procreation. Genesis 1 and 2, to keep the human race going. See, on earth people die. If married people stop having babies, the human race will eventually go extinct. However, in heaven, there is no death. This is what Jesus is speaking to when he said that we will become like the angels. We don't become angels, but we take on the immortality of the angels. We can't die. So in that way, we don't need sex or marriage because no one's dying. There's no fear of humans becoming extinct. Now think about our marriage for a second on earth. There's a certain exclusivity to our relationship with our spouse, isn't there? And rightfully so. You're to enjoy one another in marriage and that's it. That's the boundary. Husband and wife. There's an exclusivity to our marriage relationship. There's like this garden, this isn't there. No one else gets my wife but me. There's sometimes even jealousy. Is there a someone else? And let's admit it. 
This exclusiveness on earth sometimes makes it harder to develop full and open and complete relationships with anybody else in the same way that we do with our spouse. Because we want to be appropriate. We don't want to cross moral lines or boundaries with the opposite sex. But in heaven, there's no worrying about that at all. We're going to find that all our relationships in heaven will be at the same high level of our closest relationships on earth. So Jesus' point here is not whether we'll be married in heaven. We won't. Jesus' point is whether we'll get married in heaven. See, when one spouse dies, the marriage is ended. We say that in our marriage vows, till death do us part. That means when we die, we go to heaven unmarried. And we stay unmarried. We don't need to resume our marriages, be given in marriage. Why? Because the power of God will create a life in heaven so rich, so full, so enjoyable that we won't need the intimacy of a spouse or the closeness of a marriage relationship to be complete. In some way, this is an answer to what heaven will be like. Heaven's going to be a place where the power of God will make everything so right that we won't even need a spouse's shoulder to cry on. We won't need a husband's protection from evil. We won't need a wife's touch for comfort. We won't need children to make our lives full. Every relationship in heaven will be like our closest relationship on earth. If you're having a hard time comprehending that in your mind, you're in good company. Now, when I mentioned that there will be no marriages in heaven in my connection group, I got a few amens. <laughs> but for the most of us, we actually enjoy our spouse. And this is kind of sad in our earthly mindset. But, but be comforted because look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. Put it on the screen there for me. But as is written, I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them. That love him. I can't imagine not being married. It'll be all right. You're not supposed to be able to imagine that. Heaven is so good that you just can't quite fathom it in your mind. And that's okay. That's what heaven will be like. The Sadducees just weren't understanding the power of God to make heaven and all our relationships in heaven equally amazing. But they didn't just struggle with the power of God. They struggled to understand their own scriptures. And this really becomes the most important issue because they they claim that the first five books of the Bible don't teach about heaven. Yet Jesus is going to show them where they're wrong. Verse 26. And is touching the dead that they rise. Have ye not read? I love Jesus' sarcasm. Have ye not read in the books of Moses? How in the bush God spake unto him saying, I am the God of Abraham. And the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. Now let's make sense of what Jesus is doing here. He goes back to Exodus chapter 3, where God revealed himself to Moses in a burning bush. And he tells Moses to go into Egypt and to deliver my people out of Egyptian bondage. And in that encounter with Moses, God told him this, I am the God of Abraham. Follow me, church. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. Let me read you the verse, Exodus 3, 6. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Here's what we have to recognize. 
These men had died several centuries before God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. There's nothing but dust and some bones in these men's coffins. That's how long they've been deceased. Yet God told Moses, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. Are you seeing what I'm putting emphasis on? I am the God of present tense, not past tense. He didn't say I was their God for a long time, but then they died. He said, I am currently their God. Jesus uses a grammatical argument with the Sadducees. He argues that because God said, I am, he implied that he is still in a covenantal relationship with these men. Meaning they're alive. You don't have a present tense relationship with somebody that's dead. Get this. Here's God. Centuries after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob died, claiming to be in a present tense relationship with them. That's what Jesus meant when he said that God is a God of the living, not a God of the dead. That's only possible if they are alive right now in his presence. And where is God right now? Heaven. On his throne. All men, the ladies sang about it. A man named James Edward helps us to understand. Jesus' argument for the reality of the resurrection is based on the assumption that once a relationship with God is established, it bears the promise of God and cannot be ended even by death. In other words, God established a relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And even after they died, the relationship kept going and is going to this day. Listen, that's not possible unless, number one, they're alive. And number two, God has raised them up to be in heaven with him. We believe that there's more than five books in the Bible. So let me share a couple verses with you that confirm this is true. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8. We are confident. I like that. We're confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Paul says in Romans 8, for I am persuaded, just like confidence, I'm persuaded that neither, what does he start with? Death. Then he says, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor power, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I'm not screaming because I'm angry. I'm screaming because I'm excited. This is good news for all of us because like Abraham and, and like Isaac and like Jacob are in a present tense relationship with God in heaven. We who are saved will forever be in a present tense relationship with our God as well. What does that mean? Death will not end our relationship with him. Death won't even interrupt our relationship with him. He's the God of the living. The moment we take our last breath on earth is the moment we take our first breath in the presence of our God. That's how we know heaven is real. Mercy. The Sadducees tried to ask Jesus a question about heaven that make, would make him look silly. Yet Jesus gave them an answer about the power of God and the word of God that ended up making them look silly. The very scriptures they claimed to know so well were the same scriptures that proved them to be absolutely wrong. Question one, what will heaven be like? Well, it'll be a place where the power of God makes everything and everyone so good, complete, full, and right that every heavenly relationship will be raised to the same level as our best earthly relationship and we won't even need marriage to fulfill us. 
Question two, is heaven real then? Can we count on it? Based on the word of God, we can. Based on what the great I am said to Moses, we can count on an eternal present tense relationship with God in a real place called heaven. And all God's people said, what does that mean for you today? What does it mean? It means three things specifically. Number one, because heaven is real, you can live with hope. You can live with hope, church, that that you will see and you will recognize and you'll be able to embrace those saved loved ones that have already died. There's hope for that. For some, that's a parent. For some, that's a spouse. For some, that's a child. For some, it's a friend. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep or that are dead, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. You can sorrow, you can grieve, you can cry, you can hurt because you miss your saved loved ones, but you should never lose that inner sense of confidence that that you will be with them one day for all eternity. How do you know that? Because heaven's a real place. You can also live with hope that whatever sorrow or suffering you're facing right now is only temporary. Some of you may be facing very difficult times in your health right now. I was shocked to see Miss Amy back there, dressed in her pink, wearing her hat of hope, smile on her face. I think it was on purpose God gave her just enough health to be at this service today. Because Amy and many others in our congregation need to know if your health is failing, you can have hope that one day your body will be made new. No cancer, no chemotherapy, no radiation, no painful pokes. Some of you are suffering in relationships, suffering in your family situations. Works hard. Finances are short. Just mentally, it seems like you're battling depression or discouragement or disappointment or all at the same time. You know, you experience those things right now because you live in a fallen world. But one day, if you're saved, if you're saved, the world in which you live will not be fallen. It'll be restored. It'll be perfect. It'll be made new in every way. Revelation says, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away in all God's people said because heaven is real. You can live with hope. May I ask you, are you hurting today? You can live with hope because it won't last forever. Are you discouraged today? It won't last forever. Are you lonely today? Are you sick today? Are you scared today? Are you broke today? Are you worried today? Live with hope, Christian, because a better day is coming. Number two, because heaven is real, you can live with purpose. Please hear me. 
What does that mean, live with purpose? It means you live with a sense of meaning. It means you live with intentionality. It means you wake up and you have something bigger to live for than yourself. Matthew 6 says, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in where? Heaven. Why? Because moth nor rust doth corrupt and thieves do not break through nor steal. Colossians chapter 3, if ye then be risen with Christ, if you're saved, Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Okay, so what heaven's real? We'll sing about it. We'll praise God. We'll rejoice. We'll see our loved ones. We'll rejoice when there's no more crying, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. But I got to live in the nasty now and now. What does that mean? It means that as you're living in the nasty now and now, you don't have to be nasty. (laughs) Whatever that means. It means that you are living for a better day. You're living not for this side of eternity. You're living for the other side of eternity. Is anybody listening today? I've used this illustration before. Josh, sorry to interrupt your conversation, but I want to use you right quick. And Chris, why don't you come up here too? Come over here, Chris. I've used this illustration before, so if you haven't seen it, well, I'm going to use it again. If you have seen it, then act like you haven't. Pull that over there, Josh, just as far as you can go. Whoa, easy, big fella. Right there. Yeah. Y'all ready? We're going to jump rope. Just kidding. (laughs) I could do it. As you can see, there's a lot of white. Pull that, pull that sucker. There we go. It's a lot of white. But there's this small area of black. Can everybody see that okay? This area in the black represents the time you spend on earth. So God promises, you know, he says the general number would be like in the 70s. And, and then it just keeps climbing in America, right? So, so we're like to 78 or something like that. If you're a woman, you get to live a couple years longer. And so you've got the black right there on the rope. That's how long you live on earth. This represents 10,000 years and forevermore. This represents eternity. Now I have to stop it because Josh can't walk through walls. But, but this rope in your mind, it should never end. There's not a stopping point to it. There's not another guy at the end saying, okay, you've reached the end of eternity. Now it's time just to go off into a nothing world. No. Eternity doesn't end. There's not an end chapter. The book doesn't close. The movie doesn't say the end. It doesn't roll to the credits. There's just none of that. But this does end. It ends. It's so small. But yet what many Christians, they claim to be risen with Christ. They set all their affections on this. And don't live with any purpose. With this in mind, we raise our kids in America today for this. We're going to spend all kinds of money so you win a state championship for this, this. We're going to sacrifice time so that you're successful. 
You got to do this and this and this and this to get as much help for college money as possible. I'm not saying any of those things are bad, but we make them the main thing. You've got to be successful. You've got to be rich. You, you, you've got to stand out. You can't fall in the crowd. They'll never pick you if you do that, son. You got to be head and shoulders above everybody else. And so we, 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 we put into our kids, live for the black. And, and, and they live all through junior high and high school. Absolutely searching. Because football doesn't satisfy them. And baseball doesn't satisfy them. Basketball doesn't satisfy them. And good grades don't satisfy them. They get a girlfriend, they get a boyfriend, they get it doesn't. You know why we ingrain in our kids live for this. This is where all the purpose is. How we spend our money. It's all about this. It's not about this today. I'm not talking about lost people. I'm talking about saved people. People that have been risen with Christ. If you look at their bank account and see where all their money goes, their affections are on earth. There's no laying up themselves treasures in heaven. It's all about the here and the now. We treat our relationships like that. We treat our church life like that. We treat our career like that. Our career is about how can we get one step closer to the top? How can we put one more zero on the end of our annual salary? It's all about right now. When God has placed you in that workplace so that you can witness and get people into the white. Not so that you can just get rich right now. And I could go on and on and on, but Christians everywhere are setting their affections on the black. And it's that much of your life. And we're missing out on this. Some of you are weighing back and forth. What do I do? Do I get serious about church? Do I not get serious about church? Why wouldn't you? What are you waiting on? Do I, do I get serious about fixing my marriage? Why wouldn't you get serious about fixing your marriage? Do I step up my commitment to God? I don't know if it's the right. What do you mean it's not the right time? I'm going to start jump rope. It is the right time. Obedience to God is always the right time. Right now is the right time. Boast not thyself of tomorrow because you don't know what a day may bring forth. Well, don't push me, pastor. I need to think about it. Well, you only got this much to think about it. And some of you might have that much to think about it. You have no idea, hold that, how many years and days God is going to give you. Do the right thing today. Make the right priorities today. Invest your money in the right things today. Raise your kids right today. I'm telling you, it's going to get away from you. And I'm figuring out real quick, my son's in fifth grade. It scares the daylights out of me that he will be 18 years old like that. It's just something you have 18 year old right now. And you're like, where did time go? Where'd it go? And I know every parent when their kid gets 18 has regrets and I'll have them too. Because we're imperfect parents, but we don't have to have as many. Learn, learn, learn. Do everything with the purpose of eternity in mind. Thank you guys. You can put that down.
Number three, because heaven is real, you can live there forever. How do you know? Because Jesus says so. Let not your heart be troubled, he says to his disciples. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I like this. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place, a place that's tangible, a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, hey, I will come again. When you die and I got your place up there in heaven, I'm not going to leave you down here. I'm coming back to get you. I'm going to receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. And whither I go, ye know. And the way you know. And Thomas the doubter said, Lord, we don't know the way. We don't know where you're going, what you're doing, how we get there. And Jesus saith unto him, I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No man cometh unto the Father or gets to the Father's house but by me. Heaven is a real place. And everybody's invited, but not everybody's going to go. Why? Because only those that go through Jesus alone get to the Father's house. What does that mean? Jesus, what he did for you. We call it the gospel, which means the good news. The good news is simply this. Jesus was in heaven, came down to earth, put on the the flesh of, of mankind, walked on this earth, Lived a sinless life. You need to understand it was sinless. He couldn't have purchased you if he sinned himself. He would need to be died for. Right? So so, so he was sinless. He got on a cross and he died. He took your sin upon his body. And then he was buried with your sin. But then he rose again to give you victory over your sin. And to be able to then take his righteousness and give it to you. You will not, you cannot be made right with God on your own. The good news of the gospel is you don't have to. The good news of the gospel is Jesus wants to make you right with God, but you have to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, here's the challenge in that. Most think that's just too simple. It's got to be Jesus plus at least something. Jesus plus baptism. Jesus plus communion. Jesus plus good works. Jesus plus good behavior. Jesus plus church attendance. Jesus plus generosity. Jesus plus benevolence. And it's Jesus and Jesus alone. When you stand before God and and, and if you were to have to answer this question, why should I let you into my heaven? The only acceptable answer is because I believed in what your son did for me. And by faith, I can do nothing to earn heaven on my own. But by faith, I accept his free gift of salvation. I can't help but think in a room this size, there's somebody when they heard about heaven that it didn't comfort you, it made you uncomfortable. Because in your mind, you saw all that white on that rope and you thought, oh, I better make sure that if eternity is that long, I get to the right place. Some of you might be under the conviction of the Holy Spirit right now because you know there's never been a time up to this point. There's never been a time in the black where you've gotten saved. What you do with Jesus in the black determines where you go in the white. And some of you are thinking, I don't, I've never truly, I've understood it kind of, 
but I never believed in him and him alone to make me right with God. How do I do that? The Bible says you call upon him to save you. It, it doesn't mean that, that, that the, the salvation is in the prayer. It means the salvation is in the, the heart of trust. Trust and faith enough to say, God, save me. I can't save myself. That's when you're saved. I want to give you that opportunity today. I want to give every Christian here an opportunity to thank God for heaven. I want to give every suffering person in here an opportunity to come to an altar or to pray at their seat and say, thank you, God, that I won't be suffering forever. And if you know somebody suffering in our church, you, you, would be, you would do well to take them by the hand today, go right where they're at and just pray, pray over them, pray with them, bring them to an altar. I think this invitation time could be very, very special because I think there's some that need to come and get saved. I think everyone who's saved needs to come and say, thank you for heaven. I think some that are hurting need to be reminded your hurt won't be forever. If you agree with God's word, say amen. amen. Stand to your feet, every head bowed.